Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Well, good morning. So we're in the fourth week of this series called The Spirit-Filled Church, The Spirit-Filled Church. And in this series, what we're looking at is the 12 marks of the Spirit-Filled community, really the first century church. And we're trying to do it not simply as some sort of academic exercise to see if we could identify these 12 marks, but really locate these 12 marks and then compare them to where we are as a church. And if we see some discrepancies between our church and the first century church, that maybe we might be able to make some very concrete baby steps to move closer to those 12 marks. Anyway, last week we had uh, Austin's preaching. He was preaching on one of the key marks of the gospel, or key marks of the Spirit-filled church, and that it was gospel-centered. It was a gospel-centered church. We know that, and we know that at the heart of that first century church, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the center of their preaching. And it was actually the gospel that kind of kick-started and sustained the early church and brought in the Holy Spirit. If you remember from last week, we read in the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts where the Holy Spirit really showed up in a powerful way that we had the early church, about 100 members, praying fervently in a room for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit did show up by the sound of a mighty rushing wind. We, we read that there were what would seem like to be tongues of fire that rested on the heads of the, of the believers there. And then basically they began to speak in foreign tongues. And all this kind of spilled out into the surrounding community. And people accused the early disciples of drinking, of being drunk at that time. But that's when Peter stood up and he gave his amazing gospel-centered sermon and really kind of convicted the people to heart so much so that 3,000 people were baptized and joined the church that very day. And again, an amazing story. I think a story we take for granted. I don't even know if we could deal with something like that if that was to happen today, to have 3,000 people respond to a gospel message. I mean, I just can't imagine back then the kind of the chaos they would have to deal with of suddenly having that many people come into the church. You know, how would they organize it? How would they, what would they deal, do with it? And I was thinking about that and thinking, well, maybe, maybe Peter, after the sermon, he had a nice good associate, you know, by the name of Austin or somebody like that who basically, you know, said, hey, at the end of the sermon, he said, you need to be part of a connecting class. It's a free brunch or you need to be part of the on-ramp, serv- on-ramp series that are coming up. Or, or maybe he had somebody, Peter had somebody like Bev Haller who was very good about just corralling all the little kids together and, and shuffling them away off into their little classrooms. We don't know. They might have something like that. They had to do something. They had some way of being organized. And we really don't know that. But we do know is that Immediately following that conversion, that 3,000, that mass conversion, the people ended up in basically homes, in, a, in, a, in something that looked kind of like our modern-day discipleship communities. And so what we're going to do now is read through a brief section of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, to kind of get a glimpse of what that first century church looked like. Again, we'll be reading from Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching 
and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So in this brief passage, what we see is, a, is kind of a snapshot, again, of that early church. And if you're following along, you may even pick up some of the marks of the early church, uh, many of the marks that we'll talk about in the coming weeks. But the mark that we want to focus on today is basically that a, a spirit-filled church is a biblical church. A spirit-filled church is a biblical church. Now, if you're reading along, you probably, you know, didn't see any, the word biblical in there. You didn't see any word, you probably didn't see the mention of Bible. I know you didn't. But yet, if we were to unpack the first few words of that opening passage of Acts 2.42, we can get some clues that indicate that indeed it was a biblical church. Verse 42.2 says, goes on to say, I'm sorry, 2.42 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we're just going to focus primarily on this passage, this part of Acts today, and it's okay to ask questions if you're doing your own reading or sitting in a sermon. It's okay to ask questions of a particular text so you understand the complete context. The first question to ask is who were the they in the sentence? Who were they? Now, we can easily find the answer to that if you remember last week, the last passage of last week kind of referred to they, were referred to those people. In fact, it goes on to say, those who accepted his, Peter's message, were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to the number that day. So the, the they in verse 42 is really the those in verse 41. Again, those people that were converted. And if we wanted to go back even farther to find out really who the those were, we can go back and see, you know, that they were the Romans, they were Arabs, they were people from Mesopotamia, they were uh, Cretans, they were all these different people coming in from different nations for the Jewish festival, for the Passover feast. And they would be made up of a variety of people, not just Jews, but non-Jews, recent converts. They would be made up of men and women, you know, probably slaves and free. They would be made up of people who are businessmen, businesswomen, made up of a variety of people. But the bottom line, all these people came together, heard the message, and were baptized and were saved. And the next thing they did is they went and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And you say, well, what does it mean, devoted themselves? And really, it's not that the original meaning is not that much different than the meaning we associate with devoted nowadays. Basically, be, to be devoted is to continue steadfastly in a thing and give unremitting remitting attention to it. You know, that's what you mean by devotion. So you had these people baptized. They then all of a sudden became devoted to, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. But the question I want to ask them, well, what was the apostles' teaching at the time? And that one we don't know for certain. It doesn't say what they were teaching, but we can assume that they were probably teaching something about Jesus, right? They were probably teaching something about Jesus because they wanted to be obedient to Jesus. And you may recall that the last words on Jesus' lips before he left the disciples to be crucified 
was what's called the Great Commission, where he's saying to basically go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So Jesus himself said, go and teach. Teach about my commands. Not only that, teach about my life. Teach about the parables that I gave you. Teach about all these examples. Teach about the the Sermon on the Mount. Teach all these things that I taught you when you were with me. And so, he was, so again, he was, uh, we, can, we can assume that part of the curriculum of the early church was teaching about Jesus' commands, but also teaching about the various events of Jesus' life, you know, the miracles that occurred, you know, but we know for certain that they were teaching about the, the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection, so much so that they really kind of ticked off a lot of Jewish people. They got kind of tired of hearing about it. We read in Acts, 2, Acts 4, 2, where it says, they, they, in this case, would have been the Jewish people, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they were teaching that stuff. And we also know later in chapter 5 that those guys were just teaching again in general about the Christ teaching the gospel everywhere they could go. It says day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they, in this case they be the apostles, never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So we're clear that that's one part of the curriculum for the new church was teaching about Jesus, teaching about his commands, teaching about his, his parables, his life, that sort of thing, but also teaching again about the major events of the day, including the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection. And really, at that point, we have to remember, I know it's easy for us to take the granted that we have this thing called the Bible that we can refer to, but that first century, they, they didn't have, well, at least they didn't have the, the part that we would refer to as the New Testament. I mean, again, this stuff just happened. And so these guys were teaching based on total recall of what they just experienced. And so they were, again, just, just going around talking about what they saw, in this case of the apostles, but other people were, that didn't actually see it were kind of teaching on what they heard the apostles say. And so they didn't have the written New Testament in the form, or at least in the form that we had it. They had the words of the apostles, but they didn't have them written down. But what they did have written down was what we often refer to as the Old Testament. The first, in their case, the first five books of the Bible, what they would refer to as the law. That was their primary curriculum during the day. And so you have all these Jewish people come into town for this festival and then they hear the news about Jesus, and it's like, okay, so how does this all connect? And so you know they had to teach about the Old Testament, about the law. They had to teach about law, and they had to contrast that with the grace that came by way of Jesus Christ. They had to, again, set, use the Old Testament to create the context for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so they were doing a lot of, they were basically, again, connecting the dots. And that's really what we see that Peter was doing in that original sermon. What he was doing is just connecting the dots between the Old Testament and New. And as those things began being revealed to the people, their eyes were open. They were excited. And so there was all this teaching going on in the homes and everything. And people are just looking at this stuff and saying, wow, this is good stuff. You know, the old, I I see the connection to Jesus Christ. I see this stuff going on. And just this excitement from studying God's word was probably in that first century church. So much so that we read, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So that devotion to the apostles' teaching resulted in the salvation of more people. They had that spiritual fervor of of wanting to know 
the word, the verbal and written word of God. But the question we have to ask of ourselves and really of church in general is, are we as devoted as that first century to the apostles' teaching? You know, I would say probably not. I know I'm probably not as devoted to it. And, uh, you know, that's a sad thing. You know, because, you know, we, even though we don't, you know, we could say, well, we don't have, uh, obviously, the, the apostles standing before us and, and teaching in a one-to-one format or in a group format. We don't have the apostles. But again, we do have the writings of the apostles. And we also have the, the Old Testament in here. So we have 66 books of the Bible that we should be devoted to. Devoted to reading about, devoted to listening about. But for some reason, Bible reading has really kind of fallen out of favor in the last few years. In fact, uh, there's, a, there's a statistic by a guy named George Barna who says that 93% of Americans would say they own a Bible, at least one Bible, but 70% would admit they never opened the Bible. And the sad thing is about it is that many Christians, I think he said 23%, of Christians have never read their Bible at all. And so that's a sad state. And so what do you, you know, what do you attribute that to? And I was thinking, well, maybe it has to do with the fact that also we see in the last 20, 30, 40 years is that reading in general has decreased. You know, reading is not quite as popular among adults. You know, even leisure reading. You know, apparently since the 1980s, about, there's been about a 26% decrease in reading among adults and a 16% decrease in reading among children. And that basically says something of the state of really the school system where, you know, kids don't have to read as much as they used to. And so that could be part of the reason, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the whole view of the Bible has been kind of watered down over the past 30, 40 years. And so much so that you end up with kind of three views of the Bible, and this is very general. But one view is basically saying, yes, this is, this is the living word of God, and this is, this is my guide, and this is, again, this is something I, I, I base my life on it. But you also have the other extreme, a large proportion that says, you know what? Nice stories. I like reading about Jesus. I like using occasional quotes. I like learning about his stories, but not relevant for me today. Really, it's not. And then you have this large section in the middle that would probably say, yes, the Bible is the word of God, but they use it kind of as a, as a reference book, you know, kind of a rule book. In fact, a pastor named George, uh, not George, uh, Jack Hayford says it this way. He says, a large group of Christians view the Bible as a historically accurate document, giving account of the truth about the living God, but rather than being a book of life to them, is viewed more in terms of a reference book. Again, most people say, oh, yeah, it's the Word of God. But the only time they go to it is maybe they're just trying to figure something out or whatever. You can occasionally refer to it, pull it off the shelf once in a while. So we, we would want to ask ourselves, okay, so where does the first, did the first century uh, fit into this spectrum? Now, I would suggest that, you know, they are that minority that still sees the, the Bible as, a, again, the living, active Word of God, which means that they held not only the Old Testament in high esteem, but they held the apostles' teaching in high esteem. And they had some very concrete beliefs about the Word of God and about the teaching of the apostles. And likewise, if we want to be a Spirit-filled church, we will also elevate 
not only the Old Testament, but the teachings of the apostles that we find contained, again, in the 66 books of the Bible. We would have some very definite beliefs. And so what I'm going to do is close or wind down the second half of the sermon by talking about what were some of those beliefs. The first thing that the Spirit-filled church believed is uh, the Spirit-filled church believed in the accuracy of Scripture. Now, accuracy is kind of a loaded term, but back then, I don't think accuracy was as big a deal. I think people just assumed that the Old Testament they had, you know, it was good, it's right, it's fine, you know. And they were, they were dealing with a book or scrolls that were hundreds, of, if not thousands of years old. But they didn't debate about the accuracy of the Bible or the scripture that they had at the time or even the teachings of the apostles. You know, they didn't say, no, these were false. But if we know in this age, day and age where everything's about fake news, if we get a certain distance away from anything, we're going to say, you know, this is not accurate. This is inaccurate. And so when you're looking at the Bible and somebody's saying, well, you, you, you know, how do you know that the, the Bible that you have today is the same Bible that they had or at least the same writings that they had, you know, 2,000 years ago or 3,000 or 4,000 years ago? And you'd like to say, well, I, I, I can give you 100% certainty it is, but you can't. You really can't. We can't give 100% certainty because we don't have the originals with us. But although we can't give 100% certainty, we can give a very good percentage of certainty, at least be as certain as some of the more other, the other non-Christian writings that are out there. Actually, probably more than most of the writings that are out there, I think, if not all. Because although we don't have the original manuscripts, there are a lot of early copies of the Bible, different books of the Bible, that are still around. In fact, there's believed to be, I think last count, about 6,000 ancient manuscripts that are out there that's dated in the first few centuries of A.D. And you'd think that with all those copies, if you started comparing them to each other, they would be different, you know, drastically different, but they're not. They're finding that about 98% of those copies, those manuscripts, are, are, are pretty much equal. The only thing, they might, they might have some typos and different things in it, but really any of the typos or whatever that they would have in it is really not significant enough to affect any major doctrinal change. And I don't have time to go into this. I mean, we could study for weeks on looking into this, some of this stuff, but again, it just attests to the accuracy of the Scripture that we have today. Another thing that some of you may have heard about at one time is a is something known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls are basically, they're scrolls, ancient scrolls that were found, obviously, near the Dead Sea by a, uh, I think, a shepherd boy, you know, about 19, uh, 1940s or 1948. You know, this is a fragment from one of them. And uh, so they found these. And what was significant about the finding is that prior to the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Really, the, the, the most recent manuscript that they had found of the Old Testament was dated about the 10th century A.D., close to the year 1000. But yet when they found this passage, or these scrolls, it was a bunch of scrolls, they dated these back to the 2nd century B.C., which means about 1,100, 1,200 years separation between the ones that they had and the new ones that they found, the Dead Sea. And you know what? They were pretty much... Not completely identical, but again, very high sense of accuracy, so much so that they were just, again, looked like they were identical. 
Again, it attests to the integrity of keeping the, the accuracy, uh, 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 keeping, keeping the, the Old Testament manuscripts intact. And so as a Christian, you can be confident in the accuracy of your Holy Scripture. You should be confident in it, but you don't have to give all the answers. But if you want to have a reasonable confidence, there's, there's acres and acres of this type of information out there that is valid, that says the Bible you have today is virtually the same as the Bible they had in the first century. Again, with modern translations taken into account. But the accuracy of the Bible is not sufficient to get you devoted to reading the Word. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff's out there is accurate. It doesn't mean you're going to be devoted to reading to it. For you to be devoted, and for the first century church to be devoted to the accuracy, or devoted to the, to the, to the uh, apostles' teaching of the Scripture... They had to believe that it was something special about it, that it came from, it had some heavenly source to it. In other words, spirit-filled churches believe in the inspiration of Scripture. In the inspiration of Scripture, what does that mean? Inspiration means it's a, it's a term used by many theologians to designate the work of the Holy Spirit in enabling the human authors of the Bible to record what God desired to have written in the Scriptures. There's a lot of gobbledygook to basically say God had some influence on the writing of the scriptures. He had his hand in it somehow. And now there's, two, there's still people that would say, to dispute that. It says there's no way that this can be an inspired. God had his hand in it. How do you know? And again, we don't know for certain, but we do know that the first century apostles believed that the scripture they had in their hands was indeed inspired. In fact, one of the best verses that attest to this is Second Timothy 3.16, where Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed, in other words, inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man, I might add the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired. And, uh, you know, again, there's people that would read this and say, well, I can believe maybe the Old Testament. Paul was talking really about the Old Testament because that's all he had. You know, that we're not talking about the, the New Testament, the letters that we have. They're not inspired, but maybe just the Old Testament stuff is. And that, that doesn't hold up a lot because, again, even the apostles thought that their own letters had been inspired. Because we find actually... Peter kind of talking about Paul's letters to somebody else. And what does he say? He says his, his being Paul's letters, contain something that are hard to understand. And we all give an amen to that. Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So what we see happening here is that uh, Peter's kind of elevating the Old Testament scriptures to the same level as he has Paul's writings. They're both scriptures. And so, again, you can have confidence that the, some confidence that the, the Bible is inspired, and again, at least the early apostles thought it was. But the question you may have is, well, how were they inspired? What did, how, did, how did God do this? And there are several theories that I don't have a lot of time to go into, but one extreme theory is that, you know, it was like God kind of dictated the Bible to the apostles. You know, kind of like in the old days, they used to have these dictaphones where some, the boss would read into it or whatever, and the secretary would type it. And some almost see it as, a, as kind of God dictating the Bible to the writers. That doesn't hold up a lot of weight 
you know, what you find really is most people believe, or I'd say that kind of the evangelical view is that, you know, God had a, the Holy Spirit kind of guided the writing, but he still gave the apostles a lot of freedom in the writing. He still allowed them to choose some of their own words, choose their own grammar, incorporate some of their own cultural nuances, that sort of thing. The bottom line, it was, again, it was, a, it was God-inspired, but God allowed the personalities of the writers to come out in the writings. And, you know, that's, that's kind of hard to think about because really what you're talking about, kind of a, a dual nature of the Bible. You're talking about, you know, you've got this spiritual thing, but you also have the, the human element within it, and it is dual nature. And that's kind of hard to, to, to grasp until you think about the fact that the original Word of God, Jesus Christ, he had a dual nature, didn't he? You know, you know, some of you know, you've been around church long enough, you're familiar with, I think it's John 1, 1, that in the beginning, 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word, we know, was Jesus. And then in John 1, 14, John goes on to say, the Word, the Word again being Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. The Word, the eternal, everlasting God, made himself flesh, put on human clothing, so to speak, and hung out with us. Dual nature. Fully God, fully man. And so just as God, just as Jesus was again, was from above, had a spiritual element, obviously, he also had an earthly element. Likewise, the Word of God is inspired by God, but also written by human authors. That's not too hard to believe once you again put it in that terms. And so just as the word, God's word that was spoken through Jesus came to the disciples, the word of God that is spoken to the Holy Spirit now speaks to us. And that means that the Bible wasn't just, again, not, it wasn't dictated. It wasn't just, the Bible is not just some ancient record that happened to record uh, God's words down and then left to sit on the shelf. No, the word of God is alive. Or as a writer of Hebrews says, uh, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This could not happen if there was just dead orthodoxy, dead words. It's living and active. So again, just as Jesus used the word of God or used his words to speak the words of God, the Bible speaks to us today. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to speak, to illuminate the words to us. And if that's true, that this is a, a living document, then, you know, it has a certain amount of authority attached to it. Or it should have authority attached to it. And again, that authority is the authority of God because all true authority comes from God. What greater authority can you have from God? In fact, Paul writes in Romans, he says, I'm sorry, Spirit-filled churches, view the Bible's authority. Okay, he says in Romans, <laughs> I missed one. Spirit-filled churches, view the Bible's authoritative. Romans 11, 13, 1 says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Paul's talking about, you know, making sure they're listening to the authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. So what we're talking again, if the Bible, we say the Bible is our authority, you know, it's right. Because only, the only true authority 
comes from God. And so what God does, he uses the Bible to exercise his authority. And that's why you can't think of the Bible as simply this, this rule book or this military handbook, so to speak, or whatever, filled with rules and regulations. No, it's a way that God continues on his kingdom-building purposes in the world through us. We know when Jesus stepped into the, into the world or stepped into ministry, the first thing he says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. He was the word of God announcing the kingdom of God and then inviting people into that kingdom. Likewise, the word, the written word of God that we have also continues to announce the unfolding kingdom of God invites people into it to be participants of that kingdom. So in some sense, the Bible is, is not a rule book. It's really, it's a participant's manual, so to speak. You know, all been at conferences where you, you know, you get a participant's manual. That's really what the Bible is. It's for people who are, are interested in participating in the kingdom-building reality of God, the kingdom-building project. And so we're not, when the people that read the Bible are not just mindless drones, but people that are interested in becoming kingdom people, and the Bible establishes that kingdom vision and tells us how to live into it. And since we're not wired to live as kingdom people, we constantly have to open ourselves up, expose ourselves to the Bible under its authority so we can begin to change from within. And really, that's again what we're, what the, the last point is that the Spirit-filled church believes the Bible has the power to change lives. It does. That's what's amazing. I know we've all been changed by maybe some books we've read here and there. But the Bible has changed a lot, a lot of lives. You know, we think about all the people that have been converted, that, that, that have totally changed their life around by being exposed to the Word of God. Millions of people that have rejected God their entire life, and they get a, the first glimpse of the Bible, or they hear it in a sermon, or they see it on TV, or whatever, and they completely turn around. They turn around, or as Peter suggested, repent. Again, we talked about it last week, is that repent is simply just a change of, really, a change of heart. It's that I was going this way, and now I'm going that way. I was living this life, and now I'm going to go that life. And that's all done through the power, often done through the power of God, really, that's exercised through the written word. And that change isn't just simply a, 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 a change of character. It also is a change of attitude, including the attitude that a person has about the Bible. I know some of you maybe had a lot of problems, maybe thinking about the accuracy of the Bible, who wrote it, whatever. But once you become a Christian, it's like, it's accurate. I know it's accurate because I know it changed me. And I don't really need to get all caught up in the nuances, the proving that it's accurate to my unbelieving friends. It's really a waste of time. Because you know in your heart it's true. So you know it's accurate. And you also know it's inspired because you know what it did for you. You know it also, and so you're willing to submit yourself to the authority of it. And the more you put yourself to the authority of the Bible, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, you continue to be transformed into that kingdom person that God designed you to be. And the interesting thing about the Bible, much like God itself, that you can never exhaust the riches of the Bible that enable you to really become a changed person. Um, there's a passage in Romans 11.33 that, where Paul speaks of this. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgments. And it's past beyond tracing that out. I think 
if you've been reading the Bible for a while, you can connect with this passage because you say, man, I can read this Bible. I've read it for years. And all of a sudden, you know, I read those same passages before 10 times and I read it a new time in a new circumstance in my life, a new season in my life, and it just pops. And all of a sudden, a fresh revelation of God. You think, where did that come from? It's just that's, so, that's why you know the Bible is a living, active word. Because there's always something fresh coming out of it. If you're willing to devote yourself to the study of it. You will get fresh insights. There's a pastor, I think it was a 19th century pastor, uh, wrote, I lost it. Back up a couple, I had a quote there. It was a 19th century pastor uh, named A.W. Pink that wrote about this. He says, although one may know word for word the entire contents of some chapter of Scripture, and although he may have taken the time to ponder thoughtfully every sentence, yet each fresh reading will reveal new gems never seen before and new delights will be experienced. Is there anybody who can relate to that? Raise your hand. Good, because I think people got to see that. Because some people just don't get it. But you know that you could read again a passage over and over and over again. That doesn't mean a thing. Then you're in a certain life situation, maybe at work or home or whatever, and you read it and say, whoa, this is exactly what I needed today. It just pops off the page. That's the living, active Word of God. And that's a powerful thing. You're not going to get that from any other book. I, I challenge you, you know. So in close, again, you know, the, the Spirit-filled church is a biblical church. It's a people of the book. And if we, you know, it's a, it's, it's a church that, again, believes in the accuracy of the Bible, believes in the inspiration of the Bible, believes in the authority of the Bible, and believes that the Bible still has power to change lives. And if we want to be a Spirit-filled church, a biblical church, we will believe the same thing. Let us pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.